All rise and welcome back to the Conduct Detrimental Sports Law Podcast, where we'll enter final judgment on all the top sports law controversies of the day and where opinions are never subject to appellate review. I'm your host, Daniel Wallach, legal analyst for The Athletic and the founder of Wallach Legal LLC, the country's first sports wagering focused law firm. On today's docket, player rights advocate and trial lawyer extraordinaire Ben Mycellus joins me for a one-on-one interview to discuss the important work that he's doing on behalf of disabled former NFL players and the upcoming, yes, upcoming legal challenge to the NFL's new collective bargaining agreement. He breaks some news next on Conduct Detrimental. Okay, we're back for the third and final installment of the Forgotten 400. If you've been following our series, you know that the Forgotten 400 refers to the roughly 400 or so disabled former NFL players who were disenfranchised under the National Football League's new collective bargaining agreement approved last month. This is the group of players who have been receiving total and permanent disability benefits based upon a determination of disability made by the Social Security Administration. This is the way that most planned participants have qualified for total and permanent disability benefits since 2007, when Roger Goodell testified before a Senate subcommittee and guaranteed the members of Congress that day that if a former player qualified for disability through Social Security, he would automatically become a participant in the NFL's total and permanent disability benefit program without having to be reevaluated by a planned doctor. It was automatic. The new CBA takes that away. As a result, every disabled former NFL player who qualified for NFL total and permanent disability benefits through Social Security will need to be reevaluated by NFL planned doctors which will inevitably result in large numbers of these players being terminated from the NFL's disability plan. The new CBA also imposes a Social Security offset, which will reduce each plan participant's total and permanent disability benefits dollar for dollar by the amount of Social Security benefits that they receive. Now, this is a a really big deal because uh, Social Security benefits run in the neighborhood of between two and $3,000 per month, while T&P benefits run closer to 11000 So if you remove two to $3,000 of Social Security monthly checks from their um, total and permanent disability benefits, you're reducing their fixed income uh, by somewhere in the neighborhood of 20%. And that is a significant amount for a totally and permanently disabled former player who is unable to work and depends on this fixed income to pay his mortgage, uh, to pay his household expenses, to pay for his children's tuition and education, Uh, I can guarantee you that banks, colleges, and service providers aren't dropping their rates by 20% to be able to enable these players to get by on less money. This is a significant rollback 
for these former players who've earned these vested rights by virtue of having qualified for NFL total and permanent disability benefits years ago. They've been receiving and have earned their Social Security benefit checks every month without interruption. And now the new CBA seeks to take that away from them, to claw it back from them. Uh, so in part one of our installment uh, series, we've we set the stage with a tutorial basically outlining how the new CBA adversely impacts the rights of disabled former players. In installment two, we had on Lorenzo Alexander, a member of the NFLPA's executive committee, who admitted to us that it was a mistake by the NFL and the NFLPA to take away these benefits from disabled former players. And he vowed to work on the inside to try to get these benefits restored to these players uh, within the next three, four months. Of course, that's going to take an amendment to the CBA, which is no easy feat. But he did assure me that uh, while he remains a member of the executive committee, he's going to work towards that goal. And today, in the final installment of our three-part series, we'll be speaking with the prominent trial lawyer who has been on the front lines of this issue, Ben Mysalis, a partner at the Garagos and Garagos Law Firm in Los Angeles, California, is the attorney for NFL free agent Eric Reed. He is now representing a group of disabled former NFL players in the quest to get their benefits restored. He joins us today to discuss the next legal front in the battle over the NFL's new collective bargaining agreement. And hang on to your hat, he will be breaking news. So without further ado, let's dive right into the interview. Welcome to Conduct Detrimental, uh, Ben. It's a pleasure to meet you. First off, uh, before I screw this up any further, how do I pronounce your last name? Mycellus. That's what I thought. I should have gone with my first instinct. Mycellus. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your backstory, because uh, it's fascinating. I wish there was. I wish there was two of me. There's just uh, the one guy you see here. I mean, look, I was blessed after law school to connect, or during law school to connect with Mark Garagos. Um, you know, Mark is an incredibly talented. I would say one of the most talented in the world trial lawyers, um, but he instilled in me. A confidence that they kind of break down a little bit in law school, which is that you're part of this big corporate cog of lawyers and machinery and you should work for a big firm. And, you know, what Mark kind of opened up my eyes to is that at a young age, you can take, you know, big risks working for the right side of, of the issues. And so, you know, instead of working for the large firms, which I don't, you know, I don't hate on that route. It's a, it's a living, you know, I went, you know, and try to use the, you know, the skills, you know, and the connections to, you know, always help the victim in a personal injury case, you know, the underdog who's being, you know, standing up for, um, you know, preventing systemic injustice and in Colin and being, you know, put down by the executive of, of our country you know, to this case, you know, that I'm focused on now, this issue, you know, helping disabled players, um, you know, and so it's a diverse practice um, where I do litigation, I do advising, you know, I do public relations that to me is intermixed and I do transactional work and I, you know, negotiated fortunately some of the, you know, I think real big impactful deals of the, of the past, 
you know, decade, if not, you know, you know, longer, you know, the, the Colin Nike marketing campaign. And it was, I think, one of the most successful deals, you know, in, in the history of, of uh, sports endorsements. So I was blessed to work on that. And, uh, you know, just like getting my uh, hands dirty and working, you know, you know, working and putting in, putting in the hours. Yeah, I'm smiling because this is one of the easiest interviews I'm ever going to have. Interviewing a lawyer for me is always the easiest because they love to talk and they want to talk about their case. So thank you for lightening uh, the load today after a really vigorous day of interviews. Uh, I'm fascinated by everything that you've accomplished at such a young age. I mean, when I was 33 years old, I was an associate at a large law firm. And here you are today, 33, you're a partner with Mark Aragos. You've worked on some of the biggest deals in the country. What is it about, uh, I mean, you went to the right law firm, and some of it is timing, finding the right mentor, and oftentimes luck. But can you describe or the contrast working in, in the California trial system as opposed to what many of us may be used to on the East Coast? Because I read a comment by your boss and one of the profiles on you where he said, if you wanted to try cases, come to California. Yeah, you know, that was the, 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 the main kind of thought process when I met Mark early on was, he goes, look, I'm not going to pay you, you know, early on the same money you're going to make at a big firm because you don't deserve it because you don't know what the hell you're doing, you know, is what, is what he said. He goes, once you learn the skills, you know, you'll be doing better than those guys because you'll have the tangible skills. So if you want to work at a big firm, and read documents every day, you know, and not actually get out in the field and take depositions and, and, and do trials. I respect it. Take that big paycheck and do that. But if you want to work for half or one fourth of what they'll pay you, come, you know, come out here and, and you'll learn a skill that is valuable and, you know, and, and in the future you'll be able to use. So I kind of took that on faith. Um, you know, for me, it was like if Tiger Woods offered a golfer, you know, hey, you're going to have to move and watch me in Dubai or you're going to have to move to, you know, and, and give up what you want. But I'll teach you how to golf. Um, you know, do you say no? I mean, you know, I went to law school and the top trial lawyers telling me I can learn. So that was the decision I made. A lot of major life changes, you know, mm -hmm. happen as a result when I flowed from that when I moved out here to LA and you know he threw me in right away you know I remember while I was waiting for bar results and I wasn't even a licensed lawyer I obviously assumed Mark would give the opening statement at a mediation because I'm not even a licensed lawyer you know and Mark you know I, I was totally not even prepared for it and Mark was like I'm gonna let Ben you know do the opening statement and uh, at that moment, I realized I better I better be prepared for anything because he's just going to toss it to me. And, you know, it went well and the rest is history. But that's what I would recommend to young lawyers to learn the skill because that skill can't be taken from you. In pandemics, in crazy economic times, your job could be taken from you. You could be furloughed. You could be cut, you know, the same way an athlete can. But your skill can't be taken from you and you got to hone it. And that's, that's an important thing I think for people to know. Can you tell me how you got involved uh, working with Eric Reed and your role in this process? And of course your role going forward. So I represent Eric Reed. I represented Eric and Colin 
um, you know, in the collusion case. I'm not too far off in ages with him. You know, Colin's a few years younger than me, you know, who's become, you know, one of my best friends, you know, in, in the world. Um, you know, Eric, too, you know, has become, you know, just a super close friend, you know, in addition to being a client. Um, and so, you know, I advised them on a number of issues. So Eric came to me, I think it was probably March 5th or 6th, the players had gotten a copy of the collective bargaining agreement, a 456-page document, and they were told they had less than 10 days to vote on it. Eric probably even came a few days after because he had a look at it that it was even in his inbox, you know, to begin with. And he goes, hey, Ben, I know nothing about this. I'm surprised I even got this CBA because I thought, this is what Eric said, that the vote was next year. We still have one more year when the old CBA expires, so I'm not even sure really why I'm getting this. And Ben, can you go over this with me, you know, and let me know, you know, what you think at a high level and at a level so I could, you know, be advised. You know, Eric obviously wants to know what it is he's voting on, which all players, you know, should want to know because it impacts them. And so I took the laborious task of reading, you know, all 456 pages of this thing. And then even when you read the 456 pages, there's actually more because they incorporate by reference other agreements like the disability plan, which itself is, you know, a ton and ton of pages. So really to understand how everything interacts, you're probably talking about a thousand pages. And so that's what the players had to digest during the global pandemic and were told that they needed to vote on it immediately and even when players said can we have some more time the PA said no what I was surprised by first is that the executive committee the group that's tasked within the NFLPA to give this thing the thumbs up or thumbs down voted no they did not like the CBA and so I've never heard of a parliamentary body that has a committee make the first level of recommendation, vote no, and then it gets approved after you vote no to the larger body for a vote. So that was my first red flag of, of what's going on here. And then as I looked at it, you know, there are trade-offs, of course, that always happen in a labor negotiation, but what struck me the most was that the disabled retired players were getting screwed the most and having their benefits cut um, you know in terms of the application of offsets of you know offsetting social security disability insurance payments to a certain class of people adding a new definition for the word disability you know everyone had agreed that disability is the social security department's definition of disability and if it was good enough for the government, it's good enough for the NFL. And there are quotes from DeMaurice Smith and, and Roger Goodell saying, we will use the social security disability definition. And that's how players got covered. And they're changing the definition of, of what disability means. I mean, that's crazy to me. So I started seeing these things. We prepared a fact sheet, um, you know, and we tried to get it out as soon as humanly possible because players weren't educated. So Whatever that Monday was before the vote, if the vote was, you know, March 14th, whatever the Monday was before, Eric got out a fact sheet that we presented. I think players were shocked when they saw this and thought it was horrible. And players who had already voted said, can I change the vote? And the PA said no. 
But that was the first time the players were actually educated at a granular level of what was going on. The next day, the PA put out, or maybe hours later, they put out bullet points. But the bullet points were all BS because they just tried to frame it as, we're going to get you weed and we're going to increase the minimum salaries. So, look, most players are going to get a little bump and we're going to get you your marijuana so you could all smoke weed. And that's what they wanted to push about why it was a good CBA. And it was like, yeah, but the average player, average playing time was two, three years. You're going to be disabled for life for 40 years or 50 years. So the bigger issue is protecting those benefits versus the slight kind of upfront bump. So I'm speaking way too much, but those were the main issues that I flagged. Well, I want to do, I want to ask you one thing though. Do these uh, issues or, or deficiencies from the disability standpoint rise to the level of an actionable claim? I mean, you have highlighted two main areas of Article 60 in the CBA. One, which is the NFL and the NFLPA reneged or did an about face on the import of a social security determination of disability. I mean, I, I watched the video last night of Roger Goodell testifying before Congress in 2007, telling the, uh, the committee that if you're disabled under social security, you're disabled in our program and you're gonna get benefits, no separate you know, medical um, you know, uh, evaluation is going to be necessary. And then 13 years later, they do an about face. Why do you think that happened? And is that something that you think can give rise to a, a lawsuit or a claim? Are there vested rights involved here that may implicate ERISA? Yeah, I think there are vested rights that implicate ERISA. One of the things that concerned me at a most basic level is the CBA that the players got to vote on on March 5th only talked about applying these offsets to players who applied for disability after January 1, 2015. And then miraculously what appeared on the website is, you know, after the vote passed, a whole new subparagraph B in section 60 was added that reduced those same disability benefits to players who applied for disability before January 1, 2015. And so we called the NFLPA out on them the NFLPA admitted that those were changes that were indeed made, but they claimed it's non-substantive that a whole class of hundreds of players who were not identified in a voting document will now be impacted by adding the subparagraph B and applying offsets to players that were not in it. So to me, I don't get how you do that in this world. So if there's not a claim based on that, then let's just rip up every legal book in the world because in my world, even if you make a change of a comma or a period on agreements, you flag those, you have to talk those issues through because you don't just get to change documents after you vote on and say, hey, you know, you did a deal for $25 million, but I'm only going to pay you $5 million non-substantive, so I'm taking away $20 million. Like, that doesn't exist in, in yeah. my lawyer world. So, you know, maybe there's a fantasy world where, the NFLPA has just been getting away with this for so long and no one's dealing with it, but I want to bring you know a stop to that. But setting that aside, yeah, I think when you make promises and people rely on those promises to, for example, talk to banks when you're getting loans for mortgages that you're saying, I'm guaranteed X money based on promises, and those rights are certainly taken away, I think absolutely there's you know there's a vested right. I think the issues are 
There's a lot of complexity and people shy away from the granularity of what an ERISA claim looks like. And in ERISA litigation, you can, you know, for these player benefit plans, they could go on for years and years and years and you can have arguments and the public has no clue often what, what we're talking about. But at its most basic level, whether it's framed as a complaint to the National Labor Relations Board, a federal complaint for ERISA, you know, there were lies. There were promises made and promises that were not kept. And, you know, to me, there are rights that vest and that you have an actionable claim. Um, you know, if you were promised these benefits, if you relied on them to your detriment and you have a claim, you know, in terms of what which angle I'm ultimately going to go. The first was I thought I could have a common sense conversation with the NFLPA, which apparently is not possible. And so, you know, at the very least, my thought was, hey, why are you screwing disabled players? That's not a good thing, NFLPA, you know, stop it. You know, and they want to double down and, and screw these players. So that's the position that they've taken. So now the question is what legal remedies we have. And, you know, we're speaking with hundreds of disabled players, you know, who are, you know, signing up with, you know, with the firm. I've got great help from a lawyer, you know, named Ray Jenko, who is um, incredibly immersed in details and knows this world. And it, it, it blood of it runs through his veins, you know, and, and he's incredibly passionate um, about it. And so, you know, look, uh, I, I will break news on I will break news on on this podcast like like NFLPA, you're going to get sued. OK, and okay. we're going not unless, you, not unless you beat me to the punch. I mean, it's got a gestation period here of a few days. So you have some time to uh, scoop me if you want to put out your own podcast, which I you think know, you've been doing quite a bit. Of. You know what? There's. I, I'm I'm all good, you know. Who, you know, and by the way, it, uh, there's no proprietary, you know, whatever of what this lawsuit is. Everybody out there, if someone else can, you know, if anyone else wants to bring the lawsuit, you know, we're all in this together here, you know. And 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 the thought is is that just don't screw disabled players. These are not multi-millionaires. These are people who built the game, who were there in the '80s and the '90s who can't even walk down the block because their CTE is so bad that they have no clue even where they are, you know, in the universe and their wives are their primary caretakers who are not getting paid for, you know, 20 hours a day of work of caring for, you know, the husbands. And so uh, these are people we should take care of. Um, and, you know, it's just quite shocking that, that, that they're not, that they're not taken care of and, and that, and that the union wouldn't fight for it. You know, they there's the red flag of what the executive committee says when they go, no, we don't want the CBA. But when you have a year, like why not press pause and say, you know what? You're adding an extra game. The rev split, maybe we can get to 48.5% on the rev side, even though all the exclusions mean we're not really getting that rev share anyway. But, but we're not getting anything we wanted or we promised when we said we were going to be negotiating a hard CBA, but do me one favor, Roger Goodell and, and owners, like let's not screw this group over, like because they can be taken care of, and right. that's not the case. Yeah, I want to get back to the uh, law lawsuit possibility for a second. Uh, you said that your firm has been meeting with a lot of disabled former players, signing them up. When I hear the word hundreds, uh, the class action light bulb 
uh, goes goes off above my head. Are you contemplating a class action lawsuit or just a multi-party, uh, you know, a bunch of individual actions or, you know, single non-class action lawsuit? It's probably a combination of both. You know, there, there's, you know, each individual has been impacted and, you know, there could clearly be hundreds of individual cases. So without giving away the strategy, we're ultimately going to, you know, do whatever is most efficient, um, you know, for the players. Um, but, you know, it, it, it could, you know, if, if the, the ultimate purpose of a class action vehicle is if the amount is not manageable and the class is the superior vehicle, um, you know, and there's commonality and typicality, which, you know, arguably there is. I mean, mm -hmm. I can't imagine more typicality than players who all share the same reductions as a result of, you know, mm -hmm. vested interests now being reduced. So, um, you know, so, so there's a, clearly a class action course. There's clearly a mass action course. And then there's clearly a National Labor Relations Board side of it. And frankly, there's a congressional side of it too, and a political side of it also. And as we've been dealing with the COVID pandemic, I've been reluctant to obviously call for resources to be used at a congressional level to start holding hearings about why Roger Goodell and Demora Smith lied to Congress um, when they said they were going to give players certain benefits that they didn't. Um, I don't think it's the appropriate, you know, for the disabled players, it's always the appropriate time. You know, I think the, you know, in terms of how that would even look, given the pandemic, I don't think it's it's feasible to hold these hearings right now. But I think at the appropriate time, there should be hearings about, you know, why this happened, you know, why promises were made in a very violent sport that certain players were going to be protected and, and, and not. And, and the current players, you know, the current players, I don't think they fully appreciate yet, you know, that there is going to be a time where, sadly, it's about 100% of players become disabled players at some point in time. And for the future players, those disability benefits, which used to be at $250,000, are now $48,000 um, for, you know, the, the, the new players who are going to declare disability in the future, you know, after the trigger date in a few, you know, in a few years. So, they're going to be impacted too, and 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 mm -hmm. they need that for forty years, you know, you know, you know, God willing. Yeah, uh, where do you see um, the vulnerability? First of all, I want to just step back for a second. Is the CBA itself legally vulnerable to invalidation? I, I think so, and I think so because there is, you know, a, a defective vote because people voted on something that changed. You know, afterwards, you know, arguably a remedy, which I've heard is they can cure it and just focus on, you know, excising the added paragraph. But ultimately, if that changes, it creates a disparate impact overall on, on the application of disability benefits mm. to one class over another, the practical impact would probably be, you know, an invalidation. So I think it's kind of one or the other. You know, on the one hand, you know, I think invalidation is an appropriate path because I think, you know, the voting membership was was lied to. I agree. I mean, it's it's plainly I mean, if you look at the before and the after and especially those fact sheets, the handouts that 
compare the 2011 CBA to the 2020 CBA, uh, the changes in benefits for uh, retired players are couched as improvements and increases, not as reductions. So unless you read the fine print in the CBA, it's not going, the summaries that the NFLPA prepared don't really create any kind of an, you know, they're not informative as to what the, uh, you know, upshot of these changes are. In fact, in, in some ways, they're misleading. I was going to say that. I think that they're they're probably fraudulent. I mean, look, if, if you want to do a fact sheet, then you got to give the good and the bad. I mean, you're, you're fiduciaries as a union for your union membership, and you're not marketing the deal because you want this deal for reasons that are still unclear why they didn't want to fight for the things that they said they, you know, that, that they, you know, wanted to fight for. But, you know, you're, you're, you have a fiduciary obligation to weigh here are the pros. And there are some pros, like no one's saying that every aspect of it is horrible. Sure. Is there an increase in, in, in minimum salaries? Yeah. Does that make you, you know, should players be able to smoke weed, you know, if it's helpful, you know, to their recovery? Sure. Positives. But does that mean that we should overlook the negatives? And does it mean we should overlook the promises that were made? Yeah, there's an increase in minimums, but that's also because there's an extra game. And so if you add one more game to the season, you're going to have extra revenue for that extra game that you can then distribute as extra, you know, and and the increase to me is not proportionate to the value of the extra game. And so, you know, you have to balance it and prepare that picture. And so when you put this voting window and you and also they use the fear of a lockout, like if you don't agree to this, you're going to be locked out. No, you're not. You have one whole year to negotiate. They ha- if you reject it under the National Labor Relations rules, they have to come back to you in good faith and negotiate the thing. You know, and and and, and so no, there was no fear that in the next twenty days, you know, there was going to be a lockout, and that was used to scare players. And that wasn't wasn't going to happen yet, at least. And if there is a lockout, roll up your sleeves. I mean, you know, at some point, a union has to fight for its membership, okay, and you have to explain to them. Why there? Why it's a lockout? If you just go in with a defeatist attitude, that no matter what, a lockout would be disastrous for the players. You know, then then the owners are going to win. In this social media world, players can use Twitter and Instagram and TikTok mm-hmm. and all of these things to rally the public. You know, to say we're not okay with this. You know, and build the PR battle. And they didn't. They just tapped out right away. Yeah, but you know, as I as I've looked at what's happened in the NFL over the past five years with the concussion litigation, DeflateGate, Ezekiel Elliott, uh, the NFL's reputation, you know, moving, relocating franchises, one thing after another, uh, the NFL is cast in a in a negative light far more often than it's cast in a positive light. Yet at the end of the day, the average fan is thinking, "I want my football." Uh, I need the diversion. I need something to look forward to. And I don't believe that the players uh, engender the kind of, um, I wouldn't say sympathy, but um, 
you know, uh, alignment, you know, as a, I'm always on the side of labor in situations like this, but I don't feel that the players have gotten enough support in the court of public opinion, uh, you know, as we've seen with the, with the Kaepernick saga, um, there's a there's a significant majority of fans that just want their games yeah. and aren't going to throw their hat in the ring with players and, and lose a, a complete season. So how do you reconcile the public's apathy, in my opinion, towards the, 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 the labor rights of, of, of the players? I, I mean, I, I think you have to build that support. It's not going to happen, you know, yeah. it's not going to happen overnight. But look, uh, look at one of the things that the union just did. So it was a good idea for the union to create its own production company, Ace Media, to empower mm -hmm. players to own their own content. You know, bring the ownership back to players. That's a step of empowering players and keeping the rights within players. But what do they do? They can't run it. It's a total, it's a complete failure. And then they announced they're shutting it down, you know, yesterday and letting the owners control you know, every aspect of the game. So, you know, when you let owners, when you call them owners and, and you give them the instrumentality and the, and the veneer or the feeling of total control over all aspects, when at the end of the day, name and likeness and rights belong to players and you treat owners as it's a foregone conclusion <laughs> that these billionaires get to control the terms, you're always going to lose. You're always going to lose that negotiation. And when you go back and you rewind DeMorris Smith's discussing his negotiating style, and I forget some of the shows I've seen some clips, he goes, so we go to the, we go to the owners and we say, hey, we don't agree with your deal. He goes, now what? Now what? It's like, now, you, I mean, you got to work. You got to negotiate. At the end of the day, if the owners say no, you know, you got to push and you got to push and use all of those levers and you got to engender, you know, the same yeah. I think he's resigned himself to the fact that the owners as billionaires uh, have the, you know, sort of the staying power to outlast the players. And that has um, creeped into a number of his conversations recently. I don't know where the fighter in him is. You know, they, they had a litigation uh, strategy in 2011. It was partially successful, uh, but the Eighth Circuit, um, you know, ended the, uh, you know, injunction. But it just seems his M.O. going forward is not to fight. When I think these players need an advocate, they need a fighter. And and to enter into a deal like this, to have a 17th game, to give up all these disabled players' benefits and get so little in return, it's a real head-scratcher. What do you think the motivation was in getting a deal like this, um, you know, approved more than a year out. I mean, because I, you know, I, I have some obvious answers, but I want I'd like to hear what your perspective is on motivations here. I, I just think they wanted to keep the, you know, you know, keep the charade going. You know, I mean, I, I just think, I just think it was, it's, it's easy once you have the CBA in place and it's for a decade, you don't have to worry about it anymore. You know, if you look at, if you look at his language, the most important thing mm -hmm. for D. Smith was labor peace. Well, sometimes to get peace, you have to have your adversary believe you're willing to go to war. And if you're starting with the premise of peace, 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 we want labor peace, you know, no one's going to take your, you know, mm -hmm. your, your, your moves credibly. And so he began with the negotiating premise of we need a quick deal that will give us labor peace, you know, in the, you know, in, in the coming years. And we'll make concessions, but like, let's just get, you know, let's just get a deal signed. And I think they saw, 
that by kind of sneaking it in this window with kind of uncertain times, they can kind of scare people into getting the quick deal. And so that's why they introduced it all of a sudden kind of randomly. You know, right now, during, I hate to you know be so cynical, but that's why they, you know, they had a whole other year. That's why they did it now during, you know, during the, the, the pandemic. And I just think they wanted to rush it through. And look, had they waited a year, it would have essentially been a countdown of, of what a lockout would look like. So more people mm-hmm. and players, I think, would have focused on what this thing actually was. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to just springing it on, you know, springing it on you right now. I mean, look, if you get something in your inbox during a pandemic and the NFLPA puts out a fact sheet that just says, here are all the positives, vote yes, and you vote yes, and then you finally hear the negatives and you go, I want to change my vote, you know, I'd like to I'd like to take mm-hmm. a step back and they go, no, you know, that's that's what's going to happen. So I, I, yeah. so that, I think that was his negotiating compass, which was weak. And it's always been weak, and you know it's 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 unfortunate. But I guess if there's silver lining, I think what'll come of this, you know, no one's gonna look back in a year and go, "Great job, D." You know, you negotiated the hell out of that thing. Like it, as the weeks progress, everyone's gonna realize that this that this CBA, you know, was was horrible. And so, you know, I think hopefully what will happen is is. You know, they'll, you know, people will realize there'll be, there'll be new leadership, you know, and hopefully what the legal work is going to do is, um, you know, halt uh, some of the most heinous provisions of the CBA and, uh, you know, or will yeah. stop it from regulating. Well, let's talk about timing for a second. One of the most unusual characteristics of this new CBA is that it took effect immediately, even though the 2011 CBA still had a year to run. So because it has taken effect immediately and new business has been conducted under the, you know, sort of the auspices of this new CBA, does it become more difficult to unwind through preliminary injunctive relief or temporary injunctive relief? Has the, can you unscramble the egg or is this sort of the longer you wait, there becomes a risk of a waiver? You know, look, look. On, on one hand, the fact that it was done the way it, it was done, there's an argument of this was not actually a new CBA. Yeah. It was actually an amendment to the existing CBA, which triggers certain other obligations that were not filed, followed, which was um, Okung's NFL uh, mm-hmm. labor NFL labor commission. You know, challenged it on on that grounds. Two-thirds, what a two-thirds voting requirement if it's an amendment as opposed to a brand new CBA because the amendment stems from the fact that it uh, replaced or took the place of the last year of the old deal basically on substantially similar terms but some modifications. You could view that last year as being tantamount to an amendment of the 2011 CBA. So under that, through that prism, the the deal would have violated the NFLPA's constitution because you would need to have for sure two-thirds approval of the board of representatives, which you didn't have here. If it's a new CBA, then the two-thirds recommendation is optional. So are you viewing this as an amendment to the existing or to the old deal? Yeah, and look, the, the, one thing to mention too is the disability provisions kick in and you know the first wave of disability provisions kick in in, in 2021 where the 
the benefits will, the reductions will actually take place. And so, you know, part of any legal strategy in terms of a preliminary injunction versus an injunctive relief needs to focus on, you know, the immediacy of mm -hmm. certain benefits being extracted. So without getting too much strategically, yeah. you know, into it and, and kind of tipping the litigation out of, of where it's going to go, you know, I think the injunctive relief needs to take into account that by 2021, there'll be a date when benefits will start being reduced. And so whatever declaratory judgment we want to happen yeah, needs yeah. to take place before the 2021 date, right. to you know, to focus on that, you know, in terms of, you know, the, you know, a wholesale, you know, a, a wholesale you know, revision of everything. I mean, look, if at the end of the day, there are serious violations here, you know, there are, you know, the damages that were caused to those who, you know, were, were harmed by it would need to be assessed. And no, you could, I mean, look, there, there are many provisions that injunctive relief will, you know, <laughs> cause something to be unconstitutional, immigration policies and, you know, and other things that are actually implemented that then have to be kind of wound back down. And there are obviously adverse effects, but all of that can be figured out through how an injunctive order is ultimately tailored. So I think we've seen that outside of mm -hmm. the NFLPA, you know, CBA context where a law, an executive order will be implemented and there'll be a lot of, you know, execution of the order that then has to get pulled back and, you know, we're stuck with things that may be unconstitutional, but you have to tactically claw it back. Okay, speaking of constitutional, the NFLPA's constitution is an utter mess. I've read it, I've dissected it, I've highlighted so many places where the language is unclear. There are no defined terms. Uh, interchangeably used, des des describes executive committee as executive, you know, there, there, it is just one of the worst pieces of drafting I have ever seen. Do you think this plays into your favor or gives the NFLPA a uh, significant discretion to interpret it the way they want? I mean, look, I, I think it plays into our favor. I mean, look, I, I think if, you know, it, it's such a mess that the hard part is bringing the mess in a way that a court will understand it in a very busy docket of hundreds of other cases, you know, for you to get into the weeds of this history, they need to really understand why it's all screwed up. But ultimately, if you can present this in a very clear way that look how ridiculous this constitution looks, look how crazy and, and unlawful it is that they're changing contractual provisions from the vote to after the vote and that they're referencing side letters that players have never seen before. I mean, that will ultimately, you know, resonate with the court. The, the issues are, you know, the, the PA, its law firms, you know, and the people who, who, you know, who support it, you know, want to make it as difficult as possible for you to access the court system and to make these arguments through a variety of procedural motions that they often file and you know and likely would file in this. So that's the that's the challenge. All right. I want to I want to wrap up with just a couple of uh uh, questions on the scope of any potential legal action. And I know you don't want to give away too much strategy, but you're looking at not just attacking 
the change in, in disability benefits, you're looking at the uh, vote as a whole and looking to possibly invalidate or unwind the entire CBA and not just focus on the disability component? I've been, I've spoken a lot and I've been loquacious, but the answer is yes. I'm thinking, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, federal court lawsuit at some point? Is that what we're looking at? A district court in the federal court system as opposed to the NLRB uh, process? Potentially. Okay. I have high regard for you and, and for Mark, and I'm looking forward to seeing where the next legal front goes and whether there's a, uh, you know, a new chapter to the battle over the 2020 CBA. So thank you for giving me the scoop, the interview, and uh, shining a light on a lot of the legal processes that may go into this possible legal battle. Uh, so you're welcome back to Conduct Detrimental anytime. Uh, I personally uh, think that your podcast, I wanted to, I'll just, just in closing, what is the Midas Touch? Is that is that your podcast, or are you the on-air talent associated with it? So I'm the on-air talent associated with it, but it is a conglomerate of the uh, of the Mycellus brothers who are part of the ownership uh, part of the ownership group who, you know, who who launched it during the you know, during the quarantine. It was important to, uh -huh. um, you know, continue to be able to expose a lot of untruths and expose the truth um, the same way, you know, we do in our day-to-day, -day, you know, legal cases. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, misreporting that happens in the news. There's a lot of framing that's wrong, you know, and, and the examples, the ESPN article, you know, mm -hmm. that talks about the, you know, you know, which, which, you know, they were buying the NFLPA's press release that says, you know, what Eric Reed said was completely false. But then when you actually read the PA's press release and you have to get to page two or the bottom of yeah. page one, whatever it was, they were they like, buried the lead. They buried the lead on the the changes. Like we made the changes, but it was non-substantive. And, you know, controlling your narrative is critical, um, you know, especially when your narrative is the true narrative and there are people battling you to throw out false narratives out there. And so, you know, uh, you know, having you know, my brothers who are digitally savvy and create the site. I mean, the site's taken off. I mean, we've gotten, you know, close to 100,000 users like in the first, you know, 15 days of April so far, you know. And so the numbers are actually, you know, you know, pretty good for a new a new thing and it's only going to be growing. So, yeah, I, I've been impressed by it. I mean, on Twitter, you don't have a major following yet, but the quality and you will get there. I, I think what you, you, you've tapped into something um, that will really, you know, just, you know, take off. And, and it, it, in many ways, it feels like a TMZ type of, you know, site, but you're dealing with politics, sports uh, and not, you know, the entertainment industry. And I think there's a real niche to be filled there, the quality level. First of all, you're doing video, and just the quality of the production is like light years ahead of Conduct Detrimental, which is uh, basically my second bedroom audio only. So uh, maybe, maybe I need to kind of you know get in touch with the Mycellus brothers to figure out how to bring this into the 21st century. But you've been an amazing guest, and uh, I want to thank you for sharing uh, all your stories, your background, and insights into the CBA and disability benefits debacle. So, uh, you know, Ben, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you for joining me on Conduct Detrimental. Thank you.
That wraps up another episode of Conduct Detrimental, the sports law podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and like the content that we're providing, please, if you don't mind, give us a, a good review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Facebook, Twitter, Google Play, SoundCloud, or any of the other platforms in which you receive the best-in-class podcasting content. Uh, I would personally appreciate it. It helps us build the audience, and we will be back soon with another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Until next time, case dismissed and the jury is excused. Uh, have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. This podcast is sponsored by Wallach Legal. LLC, the country's first sports betting focused law firm representing clients all across this great land in matters relating to gaming law, sports wagering law, sports law, and yes, even litigation, uh, including appellate litigation. If you have any questions about the show or suggestions for future topics or guests, or if you just want to be a guest yourself, or you're looking to hire a lawyer, you can reach me in either of two ways. First, follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Wallach Legal. That's at W-A-L-L-A-C-H-L-E-G-A-L. That's all uppercase, although I don't think it makes a difference. Or you can send me an email at the following email address. WallachLegal at gmail.com. That's W-A-L-L-A-C-H. L-E-G-A-L at gmail.com Thank you.